Hi, I want to welcome you to Renton Christian Center's Recorded Ministries. We hope you'll enjoy listening to this message. Hearing God's Word is so inspiring. Here's our message. So yesterday, uh, actually Friday and Friday night and Saturday, I was in Vancouver, Washington. And uh, I'll tell you a little bit about that actually in a minute. But I was, so uh, I was, I had to drive back. I was actually supposed to be here this morning, but I ducked out. It was a, it was a retreat, and I'll kind of tell you about it. But I ducked out so I could be here this morning. And I was going to go after the last session of the night, which was supposed to end at 9.30. But every session prior to that had gone a half hour to 45 minutes long. And I'm starting to think about that, like getting home at 1 a.m., you know, driving two and a half hours and then coming and doing this. And I thought, ah, that's not such a good idea. So I, I ducked out. So I'm driving, and uh, it's raining, and so I'm thinking, oh, i got something to keep me going. So I, I'm hitting the FM radio looking for the Huskies game. So I thought, well, maybe I can catch the second half. So I find it, but obviously I'm in Vancouver. So whose call am I getting? The Oregon call. That was so awesome. <laughs> it was so awesome. And all they kept clinging to, yeah, but we won 12 years in a row. And go, yeah, but you're getting your butt kicked tonight, baby. So anybody watch that game? 70 to 21, I think it was, right? Crazy. So it was so fun to listen to the Oregon commentators call that game. I had a great time. Uh, my trip down to Vancouver was interesting because there's a foundation in Portland, and I actually found out more about this guy R.J. Murdoch, who was an incredible man, not Rupert Murdoch, R.J. Murdoch, a uh, different guy. And uh, he endowed a foundation back in the 60s uh, that was designed to strengthen Christian ministries in a number of ways. But one of their big things they have is they have something called the Vision and Call Grant. And Christian organizations, so the people that were there were from camps, they were from ministries, they were from, um, gosh, community centers on Hilltop and Tacoma, all these different Christian ministries, and they can apply for a grant from this foundation and that allows them to bring in interns, uh, college interns, to uh, have them, like I have two interns, that's why I was there, for 10 months. Um, and the idea is to take these individuals, submerge them into Christian ministry, you ha- I mean, there is a very, very strict and pretty complete mentoring program that you have to take them through. So I'm their mentor, professional mentor. But the idea is you raise up the future Christian leaders. So there was 130 of these interns uh, down in Vancouver, plus the advisors. So I went down there as an advisor. And um, I mean, it was powerful, but they had all these breakout sessions, right? And so, you know, you hear a lot about millennials, you know, that's the, you know, that's the the tag that we've put on, you know, this generation today, and a lot of generalities about, which, frankly, I don't really care for. Some of them are true, some of them are whatever, but I hate it when people get, you know, tagged with something. But we sat and we talked, and we talked, and, and they, had, they wanted us as, as, shall I say, more experienced humans, not older, but more experienced humans, to talk, and it was actually good, because I had this whole group of these millennials, and I'm just talking about professional development and growth, mostly about mistakes, talking about mistakes that we've made. And um, as I listened to them, I just, and, I, and I said this to the group I was with, I was with about eight of them, and I said, I think it is much harder for you 
than it was for me. Um, when I was their age, I was, it was about 1980, 1981. The rate of change that these guys have to deal with is light years. I mean, I can't even imagine it. Um, and so I think it is so much more challenging for them um, to be able to do what they do than what we do. But what is interesting, and they kept talking about, and the interns were talking about the value of intersecting with these older, wiser, more experienced, maybe wiser, but at least more experienced individuals. And the, there was a woman named um, Barbara, I can't remember her last name, she's from MAF in Nampa, so talk with them a little bit. That was really cool. Mission Aviation Fellowship. And she got up and shared to the girls. And all of our interns at World Vision, I have two, and then there's four more on the international side, are all women. And it was powerful to have this woman, I'd say Barb's in her early 50s, and just to share, and she says, guys, indulge me, I'm going to talk to the girls. And it was, I mean, it didn't matter that she was talking to the girls, it was super powerful. And I kept thinking about intersections. I kept thinking about this coming, to, this coming together in a moment in time. And a lot of times you don't know, one of the girls I talked to, we, we were supposed to go on these long walks, that was actually really cool. So I took a long walk with Alyssa and Molly, and we walked for an hour and a half. And if you know my knees and my feet, that was, <laughs> that was a, I kept trying to, there's a Starbucks, want to sit? No, I like walking, okay. You know, they'd be talking, I'd be three blocks back, they'd have to wait for me, it was cool. Um, but just, uh, just to, to be able to share and just talk with them and just to, um, man, that exchange was just, uh, was just incredibly awesome. So one of the things I was thinking about was the technology that these guys, all of us actually now, carry around in our pocket. Do you realize that there is more power in your cell phone than there was in the NASA space vehicle that landed on the moon? There's more computing power almost in a pocket calculator than was in that entire space module that landed on the moon. I mean, that's incredible to think. What we used to fill rooms with, that was my uh, early professional life, I worked in data, what they called data processing back in the day. We had a computer room that was about as big as this room, full of uh, these IB, big old IBM mainframes chugging away. You had to air condition it because those things created so much heat. And I have more computing power in my phone than that entire room. Um, just think about that. And I've, you know, again, this would have been 1979, 1980. Not all that, you know, so just the, the rate of change. The games and stuff. I'm not really into the games. I don't know if anybody's into games on their phone. I, you know, Angry Birds, I'll do that if I'm in the airport, my plane's late or whatever. I'll, I'll do that, but I don't really do it. But when I was younger, so I'm going to talk to, I'm not going to talk to you guys for a minute, just bear with me. So you had to go to the arcade to play your games, right? Pinball or, you know, you'd have the shooting galleries or whatever, but there was, I don't know if anybody remembers this one, but there was a game that was my absolute favorite game, and it was called Sub Hunt. Does anybody remember Sub Hunt? Sub Hunt, <laughs> that's my boys. My brother and I, there was a Shakey's Pizza, and we didn't get to go very often, but when we did, we would save our quarters, and our quarters were saved for sub hunt. And we would go to Shakey's, we'd eat our pizza as fast as we could, and then we'd go to that machine. And it was, you know, your typical, you know, arcade game, but it was a submarine. And so you'd get down, and you'd put your quarters in, and so it was kind of dark, and here's the ocean in front of you, and then there was a horizon, and these ships would go by, on that horizon, and so you could turn your periscope 
and you had like this little X. And what you'd have to try to do is you'd have to try to, and you had a thing to launch your torpedo, and this boat would come by, and you'd try to launch, and you'd try to make your torpedo hit that boat by leading it. Kind of like being a quarterback and having, you know, Doug Baldwin go over the middle, and, you know, Russell never throws it where Doug is. He's going to throw it where Doug is going to be, right? Well, that's what you do in sub hunt. And the big boats go slow. They're easy to shoot, you know. But then there's like little patrol boats, beep, 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 and they go really fast. And I don't think I ever hit a patrol boat. But sub hunt, man, sub hunt was awesome because it was all about intersections. It was all about your torpedo coming together where that was going to be for that opportunity. And I started thinking about intersections, and I started thinking about divine intersections. And many of us here who uh, are Christians have been walking with the Lord. And this is what I said to, to Alyssa and Amali when we were walking. Molly just told this wonderful story about difficulty. And um, she basically said she was in a season of her life where she really didn't know if she mattered to God or not. She felt empty. She felt disconnected. And she kind of said, you know, God, I know you're big and I know the world's a big place and I'm praying and I'm seeking you and I'm trying to find you and I'm not getting anything back, and I guess I just don't matter. I guess I'm just too small to matter. Molly's 22. I guess I'm just too small to matter. So she said she was at a, an event or, or something somewhere, and she was feeling very, very down, and you know, talking about feeling like a failure. That was where Molly was at. She went and she sat on a stairway, and she said, I had a friend named Grant. He, I didn't know him well, uh, but he was kind of in the circle of friends. She says, I'm sitting on this stairway, and Grant walks over and sits down next to me, and he's, and he's kind of a little self-conscious, and he goes, Molly, I don't do this very often, but I feel like God gave me a word, and he wants me to say it to you. And she goes, okay, what is it? And he just looks at her, and he goes, Molly, God knows your name. He goes, I don't know if that means anything to you or not, but God, God knows your name, Molly. And he, you know, Grant gets up and leaves, and Molly says she just bawled her eyes out. God knew her. God had heard her. So we talked about that, and I said, Molly, that is a moment in time where God allows you to drive a stake deep into his love and deep into who he is. And those are the things, I said, think of it like a mountain climber. When that happens, you drive that piton deep into that stone, and you hook into that, right? Because he's calling you now to climb higher. And when you climb higher, you're sort of free climbing, right? But if you slip, you know. You know that you know that you know that you've driven your identity deep into who Jesus is, and it gives you the courage to climb higher. Until the next time he does that, and the next time he does that. So it was an awesome, awesome conversation um, with Molly, and just to be able to give her that perspective. And I told her, I said, your Christian journey, this is the older guy talking, right? Your Christian journey will be a series of those. A series of being confused, lost, depressed, unsure, defeated, failure. But God knows your name. And there will be a moment where you can drive that stake deep and tie into it. And God's going to allow you to climb higher. And that's what your faith is. You stand on what you know and you climb to what you don't know. Uh, it's pretty powerful. I, when I think about subhunt and when I think about our life as Christians, right? And, you know, carry the metaphor. It's kind of a silly metaphor, but carry it out a little bit. You know, God's the, you know, God's in the submarine, right? And here's the unsaved flying around on the horizon. And what's usually in the torpedo? Us. 
divine interventions, design, divine intersections, where you have some individual that is living their life, minding their own business, struggling, successful, whatever, and they're just zigzagging across the horizon. And God loves you too much to leave you alone. And so he will aim those divine appointments. That's why, you guys, we have to walk around with our antennas up. We have to walk around with our eyes open. Is this a moment where God is aiming me and has a divine intersection in mind for me? Sometimes God does it through circumstances. Most often, in my experience, he does it through people. We need to walk around here alert and to know that when the captain presses that fire button, we need to be ready. We need to be ready to go uh, and ready for that divine intersection. You know, I was thinking about um, extremes. Um, there's always a continuum in life, right? There's this, you know, extreme, and then there's this extreme. And when I think about those boats that go by on the horizon of that game, and again, if you want to think about them as, again, just the unsaved, people just live in their life, um, you kind of have two extremes. And I think they, they, you know, agree or disagree, but I'm just going to tell you kind of my thinking. Um, those extremes would be someone who is so mired in their own sense of failure, their own actions, their own self-destruction and destruction of others that they don't think God could ever love them on that one end of the continuum. And on the other end of the continuum, those that are so successful, so self-righteous, so empowered, self-empowered, that they don't see the need for a Savior because they don't feel like they need to be saved. And that would be those two extremes. Which do you think is harder to hit with that torpedo? Heck yes. Pharisees, right? Um, sometimes you just have people that are just purely successful. My best friend in high school is a guy named Robert. And uh, Robert, Grace knows Robert, obviously really well, handsome, talented, great athlete, smart as a whip, full-ride scholarship to USC, out of school. Um, he and I started going to a Bible study when we were seniors in high school. That's where I met my wife at that Bible study. And um, I accepted the Lord out of that Bible study, a basketball coach that would lead that, and, and I accepted Christ. Never, it was uh, December 26th, 1976. That was when I accepted Christ. And Robert and I, Robert didn't. Robert, we both went to the Bible study for the girls. Okay, There was a lot of cute girls there, obviously. Um, and still very cute, because I got killed on that last week. Um, still very cute. So I haven't heard of the end of that one, believe me. Uh, so that's why we went. And so, you know, you know what? It's just so, it's such a weird thing to think that you can both be like in that same environment, going through the same stuff, and like, that invitation hits on one and not on the other. That intersection for that torpedo blasted me out of the water. I need a savior. Uh, I don't really even know what that means. I didn't when I went forward. I didn't even know what it meant, but I just knew it felt right. Uh, Robert didn't, and we tried to maintain our friendship, but we were not in the same place, and we were not going the same direction. And I'll never forget this. My parents had a pool. We live in Southern California. Robert and I are hanging out in the pool, and we know we're trying to keep it together, but we know our friendship is coming apart. And so he asked me at one point, and he goes, so are you really like going to do this God thing? Um, and I said, yeah. I said, I, I really am. And he, he, this is exactly what he said to me. He looked at me. He goes, well, I guess that's the difference between you and I. You need God and I don't. 
It's like, yeah, I guess so. So our friendship at that point, you know, kind of ended. And I loved that guy. He was my best friend. But we weren't going the same direction. But I'll tell you the good ending to that story. I don't have time to tell you all the awesome God stuff. Three years later, Robert called me on the phone. And he said, he was kind of hemming and hawing. And he said, are you still like into church? And I said, you mean am I Christian? I said, yeah, definitely. And he goes, I think I am too. <laughs> and I need to talk to somebody. And I said, where are you living? He goes, I'm over in San Gabriel. Well, I said, I'll be right over. Went over there. He had accepted Christ. Um, had a girl that he met that led him to the Lord and then told him once he went forward, she said, I can't be with you anymore because your relationship needs to be with Jesus and not with me. What an act of love on her part that was. And so he was adrift. He was like, because it kind of was her. But he also knew, he told me, he went to Grace Community Church down in Southern California, John MacArthur, a lot of you guys, John MacArthur's spoken on the radio for years. And he said, I'm in this room with 5,000 people, and MacArthur was talking right to me. So he went up and accepted the Lord, went over his house, hung out. We ended up starting a Bible study together, brought all kinds of young people into the living room of uh, where he was living, and we led that Bible study, co-led it together for years um, after that. God has divine appointments, and sometimes the torpedo misses, but guess what? God will never like go, oh, well, you know, that one got away. He will pursue. He is a God who pursues. Um, I remember being here two Thursdays ago when the Teen Challenge Folks, we're here. We had worship and praise night. I invite you guys all to come to that, man. It's powerful. I know it's another night of the week, and I know we're all busy, but the Teen Challenge folks were here, about 21 guys, something like that. And with the sense I got, I was up here playing drums, and I was watching them worship, and I saw these guys, and these are, through their own mistakes, through their own decisions, are staring into the abyss, are right on the edge of that abyss, and are one step from disappearing, and they know it. And they are holding on to Jesus with a fierceness that, frankly, we all ought to be holding on to him with because we're all one step from the abyss. But these guys who watched them worship, to just see it in their face? It was like just this fierce determination to not take that next step into the abyss. I was so moved by that. It was so great having these guys here. Pharisees are hard. Pharisees are hard. I remember when I accepted the Lord, I was raised in the church. Um, it was very social. It was what you did. Leave it to Beaver, went to church, I'm sure, so we did too. And uh, it was a very social thing, not really a heart thing. Uh, I was confirmed when I was in ninth grade. I was sprinkled when I was a baby, all the stuff you're supposed to do. And uh, then when I was in high school, I got saved. I met Christ. And my, <laughs> my, my mom and dad, God bless them, they thought I was in a cult. My mom thought that. She goes, oh, my God, you want to go to church? You want to, oh, my God, you must be in a cult. Because we used to like go, Mom, do we have to go to church this Sunday? Can we stay home? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, Thursday night, Wednesday night, Sunday. Um, I'm happy to say, though, that my whole family, my sister, my brother, and my parents um, became Christians. I don't want to say that I'm responsible, but I was kind of the first one, and then it kind of unfolded. But I'll tell you what was interesting. My sister was sort of easy. My sister started coming to Bible study with me, and she accepted. My parents, it took a little longer because like I got baptized after I got saved. Oh, my mom was so upset. You're disqualifying what we did for you. And I said, no, mom, I so appreciate what you did for me, but now I got to do it for myself. I have to make my own statement. 
And it took a long time for, for them to understand that. But my parents really came around and uh, had wonderful relationships with Christ, both of them. But my brother, my brother Keith, uh, he'd been confirmed. He'd been sprinkled. He you know, kind of knew his Bible, whatever. And here I am saying, I wasn't saved and now I am. Well, what does that say to him? Right? That's not a very comfortable thing. So the Phariseeism went on big time. Uh, you don't have anything to tell me. You're no better than I am. I, I know all the bad stuff about you, you know, and put up that really, my brother, the hardest one in the entire family, one of the hardest ones that I've ever witnessed to was my brother Keith. Um, but God had divine intersections for him. I was playing in a Christian band back in the day, 1977 to 1980. I played in a Christian band called Airborne, H-E-I-R-B-O-R-N, Born Heirs in Christ. It was awesome. And back in the day, we were considered like pretty radical, but you'd listen to us now and you're like, oh, okay. Um, but back in the day, you know, uh, it, was, it was pretty cool. And uh, we had a guy that would do photography for us and stuff when we played gigs. And so the guy that was doing our photography moved away. And my brother had a nice camera. He used to like take pictures. And we said, hey, would you come? And we had a couple of concerts coming up. Would you come and take photos for us? So Keith came. He took photos. And he did that three or four or five gigs. I don't know what it was. And we always just practice on Saturday uh, afternoons and Sunday after church. That was our practice days. So it was a Saturday. I'm out in West Covina, California, West Covina Church of Christ, where we played out of. And um, we're practicing or whatever, and my brother comes in the practice room. Well, he never came to practice. And um, so, hey, dude, what are you doing here? You know? And he goes, can I talk to you guys? And I said, sure, put our instruments down. What's up? And he goes, so I've gone to a few of your concerts and taken pictures, and we were very evangelical group very evangelical from the stage. And uh, he said, I've been listening to the stuff you guys have been sharing from the stage. And he goes, I realize I'm not saved. And I need Jesus. So let's pray right now. We prayed my brother into the kingdom. Uh, the Phariseeism wore off at that point and prayed my brother into the kingdom. Pharisees are hard though, man. They're hard. But God will never give up. He's always got another torpedo in the tube. Right? And... and so here's what I'd like to do today in thinking about what I just shared. I'm going to read you a piece of scripture um, that talks about Phariseeism a little bit. It's a story everybody knows. This is uh, out of the book of Mark. It's actually in most of the Gospels. I picked the one out of Mark to read to you guys. And this is the story of the rich young ruler, the rich young man who comes to Jesus. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why do you call me good? No one's good except God alone. And then he looks at him, he says, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not give false testimony, do not defraud, honor your mother. So he's going through the Ten Commandments with him, right? These are all things you're supposed to do. He says, teacher... All these things I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell, and he went away sad because he had great wealth. He needed his wealth more than he needed a savior. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel 
to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Can I read you guys a story? Okay. You better say yes, because I'm going to do it anyway. So, how many of you guys have heard that story out of the Bible before? Probably almost just about if you've been in church and whatever. We all know that story of the rich young ruler. So I took, as I want to do with my writing, I took a couple of liberties, and I started to imagine what would happen, what happened to that guy after he left, after he walked away. Because God doesn't give up on you, does he? So the story is called The Needle's Eye. The greatest stories ever told convey a simple truth and speak the hearts of women, men, grandparents, kids, and youth. And if that's so for all of us, we're very likely liable to find a narrative like that in the pages of our Bible. So here's a tale from long ago, one shared and shared again, but there's a twist, for this one starts where you've always heard it end. A crowd had gathered one fine day, a dozen men or so, while two of them intently talked, the rest take in the flow. The tall one they call Jesus. He's that famous Nazarene. They say he heals the sick that he once made ten lepers clean. The other man has traveled far to have this conversation, but he's reacting to the talk with shock and consternation. His shoulders slump, his fists are clenched. He slowly bows his head. It's obvious he is displeased by what Jesus has said. Did we hear that comment right? I'm really not quite sure. I thought he said, sell all you have and give it to the poor. And so this man turns on his heel and moves beyond the crowd. Jesus stands and shakes his head, then says these words aloud. And so it is with men of wealth who want what they can't buy. A camel has a better chance to pass through the needle's eye. The rich man paused a moment as these words hung in the air. He seemed about to turn around then moved off in his despair. He walks with hurried, measured step, his feelings quite disjointed. All at once, he's angry, sad, annoyed, and disappointed. To think of all the buildup, all the ripe anticipation, the pinnacle of all he's sought, his life's grand culmination, the sacrifice, the discipline, the things he's done without, to see it all as worthless and to be told it doesn't count. He walks until he finds the stable where he left his horse. And as he starts his journey home, his memories threw him course. He hearkens back to Hebrew school and his lessons in the law, his efforts to identify and squash each human flaw. Up till dawn, till well past dark, he'd studied in the quiet, always strict about the Sabbath, always careful in his diet. He memorized commandments and actionized each one. This allowed no time for hobbies, friends, frivolity, or fun. His morals were impeccable citing laws and rules with ease. He outrighteous all the righteous, out Pharisee the Pharisees. So he lived a life of virtue, and he watched with bated breath as there circulated stories of the man from Nazareth. He'd heard he was a prophet, although some said a pariah. Now the buzz around the town was that he could be the Messiah. The time had come for payoff. Oh, the praise that he would glean. He put on his finest clothing and sought out the Nazarene. He rode into the village, through the crowd he'd quickly burst, and then he fell upon his knees, just in the way he had rehearsed. 
He mustered up sincerity. Forced humility was rife. Good teacher, won't you tell me how to have eternal life? The reply that he received, he'd oft recited in his sleep, as Jesus listed all of the commandments he must keep. So he rose up from the dust once the list was finally done, and in a tone of satisfaction said, I've kept all, yes, every one. He anticipated praise, so was quite taken aback when Jesus said to him, there's still one other thing you lack. For Jesus saw into his heart, past the grand facade he wore, sell all of your possessions and then give it to the poor. These phrases struck him cold, just like an empty tomb or, or crypt. He stood without an answer, for this wasn't in his script. Now Jesus finished speaking, go do what I ask of thee, then return here to this place, and only then come follow me. But the rich man sought escape, for he knew he'd been uncovered, his self-righteousness exposed and his true treasure now discovered. So this man of wealth, his carnality awakened, turned and slowly walked away with his foundation greatly shaken. Now mounted on his horse, he wrestled hard to understand why he was judged unqualified. He kept the list of God's commands. I guess that Nazarene just isn't who I thought he was. If he were, he'd recognize a man for all the works he does. Why, my wealth, that shouldn't matter, as he repaired his moral axis. After all, I donate alms, I pay my tithe, I pay my taxes. I guess I'll just keep looking for a lord to match my creed. Try to pass a camel through a rich, try to pass a rich man's camel through a needle's eye indeed. He was traveling to his father's where he lived in luxury. His family all were traders charging large and handsome fees. I'll just dive into the business, this he said with some resolve. I can still obey the Talmud and in our trading be involved. So arriving at the compound, he picked up where he left off, his religion hard and rigid, no compromise, no going soft. And his fortune also prospered as his father's business thrived. You'd think he'd be contented, quite fulfilled and satisfied. But alas, the more he prayed, the more he read, the more he knelt. His soul was dry and arid, and the emptier he felt. All the money they were making only mocked and jibed and taunted, a reminder that he couldn't buy the thing he really wanted. Until one day his father delegated an assignment, weave cargo for Jerusalem to sell there on consignment, load up a sturdy camel, drive him without pause or pity, for it's imperative this merchandise move now into the city. But I have this admonition, no matter signs or words or omens, this shipment must be never confiscated by the Romans. You'll leave this very morning. Get it safely into town. There's great money to be made. I trust you will not let me down. So he obeys his father's wishes as the camel grunts and groans for it's loaded to the hilt, straining muscles, straining bones. As he walks the dusty miles, he hopes this trip will clear his head, for his mind just can't release those nagging words that Jesus said. He pauses at a village to have a drink and briefly rest. The people here are poor, Yet he's honored as a guest. He served a humble meal, just some fish and barley bread. Then a sound gaze, gains his attention. He pours some wine and turns his head. Two beggars fill the doorway. One makes his way by touch. It's apparent that he is blind. The other leans upon a crutch. The rich man grabs his purse to toss a coin and so dismiss. Yet before he lobs his shekel, this worn routine now goes amiss. For the men are warmly greeted by the woman of the house. 
Two chairs are kindly offered by a man, the woman's spouse. Then food and drink appear. Their thirst and hunger are relieved. These beggars know the honor the rich man, too, had just received. He motions to the woman as she walks beside his table. He wants to understand. From his point of view, he is unable. Why these acts of privilege shown to those who cannot pay? Why not give them each some bread and simply send them on their way? She responded to his question with a smile and knowing nod. When you reach out to help the poor, you really touch the heart of God. Besides, you never know, she winked, parading across the floor, for when you least expect, there could be angels at your door. She moved on to the kitchen. He sipped his wine and chewed his bread. The words of Jesus and this woman echoing loudly in his head. He left some coins upon the table, went outside to check his pack, and as he did, he still could hear, there's just one other thing you lack. So he traveled days and nights as his loaded camel hauls, and soon he topped a sandy rise and now could see the city walls. He approached the massive gate and sensed that something here was wrong, for the entire way was blocked due to a large and teeming throng. He struggled to get nearer, angry people milled about, for the gate was blocked by Romans, keeping everybody out. What's happening in the city, he asked those he was beside. Why have soldiers blocked the entrance? Why can't we travel on inside? It's been like this for days, a man said angry at the scene, all because those Jewish leaders sought and seized the Nazarene. I heard the Romans beat him, and the rich man was reviled as he was told about the flogging and the mocking and the trial. Somehow the, the high Sanhedrin got these Romans here to try him. Now they're agitating hotly because they want to crucify him. That's why the gate is blocked, why we're not permitted by it. Seems the governor is worried there'll be violence and a riot. At these words, the rich man turned and he walked some feet away. How could such a thing be happening? He felt remorse and keen dismay. He'd begun to reconsider what was wealth and what was dross. Now the man who had those answers was condemned on a cross. As he stood there and debated to remain or take his leave, he felt a sudden tugging and a pulling on his sleeve. Just behind him was a beggar, very dirty, somewhat gross. The beggar looked from side to side that beckoned him in close. I can get you in the city, but you're going to have to pay. You'll not get past the Romans, but I know another way. Meet me here at sundown. Don't be late, for I won't tarry. The price is non-negotiable. It's 25 denarii. As the beggar slightly nodded, and the rich man spoke aloud, but the beggar never heard, for he had vanished in the crowd. Sundown begins the Sabbath, the rich man pondered in a bother. But I must get in the city. I surely must obey my father. It seemed the only option was what the beggar had discussed. So he set up a little camp and settled down to wait for dusk. Then there arose a great commotion, seething turmoil at the gate. The soldiers were advancing. Had they come to seize his freight? The Romans marched in columns. People shouted in their wrath. Then halting firm behind their shields, the soldiers formed an open path. And through this human causeway, three men were rudely bossed, prodded forward by the soldiers, each one burdened with a cross. The rich man sank down to his knees, for his legs had turned to putty. He saw leading this procession Jesus, cut and bruised and bloody. They exited the city and were out of sight until he saw them once again as they climbed a nearby hill. No words could hold his feelings. What wrongs had Jesus done? 
as you watched the crosses raised upon the hilltop one by one. Throughout the day, he sat there holding vigil grim and stark. He felt it growing colder and the sky was turning dark. The wind increased its volume and the stones began to break. The darkness grew more ominous and the ground began to shake. He contemplated running lest he come to any harm. Then he cried out as he was startled when the beggar grabbed his arm. Let's move into the city while the Romans are distracted. We very little time to launch the plan we have enacted. Follow close behind me. Keep your camel very quiet. We're heading to the southern wall. That's where we're going to try it. As the beggar stepped in earnest, the rich man felt a chill, and he paused for one last look back to the scene upon the hill. Something seemed unfinished, like a dream you can't recall. Then he started down the pathway leading to the southern wall. They walked around the city, the pathway narrow and abrupt, with the beggar out in front. He never could seem to catch up. Then the trail angled sharply, slowing progress to a crawl until the beggar, man and camel, finally reached the southern wall. They moved along the footings as the sun was going down. There it is, cried the beggar. That's our way into the town. The rich man stood astonished, felt his aching shoulders drop, for the gate was short and narrow and sharply pointed at the top. He was angry at the beggar, for his trust now seemed ill-put. This gate's no good for camels, only those who go by foot. Don't fear, replied the beggar. I've done this several times before. There's a method to employ to get your camel through the door. We must get him unloaded, every basket, sack, and crate. Only then will he be able to pass through this narrow gate. So they unpacked the loaded camel, and when he was burden-free at last, it was apparent to the rich man he was still too tall to pass. We've gone to all this trouble, said the rich man. What a chore, and we're no closer with the camel than we even were before. Unloading, said the beggar, is step one of what we do. Hand to me the reins, and I'll now show you number two. He took the reins and prodded. His old nerves were made of steel. Through an impressive show of skill, he got the animal to kneel. Then coaxing him to shuffle at a slow and steady rate, he moved the camel forward and then right on through the gate. You see, that's how we do it, said the beggar, grinning sly. That's how you get a camel to pass through the needle's eye. At these words, the rich man froze, for they took his breath away. With a voice both high and pinched, he stammered out, What did you say? The beggar turned to answer as he rubbed his balding pate. I said, This here's the needle's eye. That's our nickname for this gate. Most people seek the highway through the door that's tall and wide. Yet it's by the path less traveled that you truly get inside. Sometimes it's just too simple. We miss the forest for the trees. You only reach your destination with empty hands and bended knees. The rich man stood in wonder what revelation had been quoted, while the beggar simply smiled and said, let's get your camel loaded. So they repacked all the cargo, every pound the beast could carry. Then the rich man reached into his purse, counting 25 denarii, and turning to the beggar said, to our bargain you adhered, but clipped his words mid-sentence, for the beggar had disappeared. He looked far down the narrow street, then back the other way, and saw he stood there quite alone, shaking his head in his dismay. Then he remembered what the woman he remembered what the woman had observed two days before, when you least expect there could be angels at your door. So much here was a mystery and so hard to reconcile, he departed with his camel, his mind spinning all the while. 
Then arriving at the warehouse that his father designated, he dropped the camel and his load, rented a room, simply waited. For it was fully now the Sabbath. He could no longer be excused and spent the day of rest, feeling both challenged and confused. Why would God seem to be leading him to Jesus as the truth, superseding all the training he'd engaged in since his youth? And even if the Nazarene were the one to really fill him, what good would that do now, for he'd seen the Romans kill him? It was early Sunday morning, and the sun was not yet up, though the, through the night, conflicting thoughts, all chance of sleep would interrupt. Finally, rising from his bed and putting on a simple frock, he, the rich man left his room to clear his head and take a walk. Strolling through deserted streets, for the town was still asleep, he walked to and through the gate where local shepherds keep their sheep. Then some way beyond the walls, the well-worn path began to harden, and soon he found himself within a peaceful little garden. As the newly rising sun confirmed the long night's final end, he sat himself upon a rock, then heard the words, Hello, my friend. Surprised and somewhat startled, the rich man stood and turned around, concerned that he had trespassed on restricted private ground. The man he now addressed seemed neither threatening or rude, Beg your pardon, honored sir, I hope I didn't bother or intrude. Not at all. In fact, you're welcome, said the stranger. Welcome, surely. Nice to know I'm not the only one this day who's risen early. <laughs> Something familiar in this stranger put the rich man right at ease. Are you the gardener hereabout, caring for the plants and trees? The stranger gave a laugh. His eyes contained a playful shine. Well, I've been known to trim or prune a growing vine from time to time. <laughs> Hope you don't resent my asking, said the stranger drawing near. I just couldn't help but wonder at this hour what brought you here. There was something about the gardener that calmed the rich man's tight reserve, so he told his troubled story down to the last perplexing word. And so I feel abandoned, said the rich man, and confused. I'm so full of keen regret, his invitation I refused. And so now my heart is breaking, his voice tidy, forced to swallow, for with Jesus lying in a tomb... I've got no one to follow. The stranger smiled a knowing smile, then motioned with his head. Nodding in a nearby rose bush, he turned and gently said, You see those lovely roses, the bloom so full of beauty? There's only one way to achieve this, and it's the gardener's sacred duty. To prune it back to simple basics, unfruitful branches purge, for in removing those obstructions, its true beauty can emerge. And so it is with people. It's where living really starts. God will empty out our hands so he can overflow our hearts. These words were like an ointment to the rich man's battered soul. He could feel his heart reforming, broken pieces, mending whole. As for someone you can follow who will lead to what is true, I believe the thing well promised was creating all things new. Love always grows stronger when our fear and doubt diminish. Simply fix your eyes on God for what he starts always finish. Then he grasped the rich man's shoulder as their conversation ends. I'm afraid I have to go now, for I've got to meet some friends. With a smile, he left the rich man, who from a distance heard him cry. Sometimes that good old camel makes it through the needle's eye. The rich man raised his head, and from his throat there came a gasp. Who he'd just been talking to, his mind now suddenly could grasp. He looked beyond the trees and through the filtered light of dawn. He could see no form of figure. It was clear the man was gone. As he stood there in the garden, a smile played upon his face. 
He had never felt so free. Religion overcome by grace. With the sun now fully risen, the rich man retraced his route, returning to the city unencumbered now by doubt. Feeling fresh and single-minded, there's one thing that he knows well. He's got to hurry home because he's got some things to sell. So let's close in prayer. I don't think I need to say any more than that. <laughs> Lord God, you're never done with us. You chase us relentlessly because you love us. You even chase us after you save us because you have so much for us. God, forgive us for the times that we're fearful. Forgive us for the times that we listen to the voices we shouldn't listen to that tell us things about ourselves that are not true. And in Ashley's words today, we're not failures. Um, we are your children, princes and princesses in the presence of a king. And uh, Lord Jesus, let us live into that reality every day. God, let us be the torpedoes that you launch, uh, prepared, uh, well-aimed, and ready to give a defense, to speak, to love, um, to listen. Whatever we're called to do in that moment, may, we be, may our life be a web of divine intersections with those that you love so well and with those that you will never stop chasing because you love us in Jesus' name. Amen. Listening to God's teachings is always so exciting. We hope you have enjoyed this recording and that it has blessed you. Remember to share these messages with others you know and love. Until next time, may God bless and keep you. Here again is Pastor Kevin. Do you ever have thoughts about your purpose in life? Have you accepted Christ as your Lord and Savior? Or maybe you walked away and it's time to come home. You know, really our walk with God is about a personal relationship with Him. That's what He wants. I believe that's what we want. I encourage you to take a few moments and allow this message to sink in. Allow His Holy Spirit to speak to your heart. You know, the Bible says that if we draw close to Him, that He will draw close to us. So do that today. God bless.